Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. I'm particularly delighted to see all the GI people here. You know, we do have Medical Grand Rounds every Friday at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and uh, so uh, today is a special event as well. We're delighted to have Mark Pimentel here, and you will hear about him in just a moment, introduced by Eric Shaw. But it gives me great pleasure to talk about my mentor and friend, Maury Kelly, because this is also the Maury Kelly Memorial Lecture. So Dr. Kelly was, um, uh, he grew up in Montpelier. He went to the University of Vermont. The war was breaking out in the late 30s, and he decided to enlist in the Army, so he did that. And during the Army program, you had, sometimes you were selected to do things, and he was selected to become a physician, if he wanted to be, and he went to Virginia Polytechnic Institute and Princeton for his pre-medical courses, and he served in the Army, and then he went to the University of Rochester Medical School. And after he finished that, he decided to re-enlist in the Air Force, and he was deployed in England in two different um, areas, and he rose to the level of captain. And when he came back, he became the Bixby Fellow at Strong Memorial Hospital and did that for two years. And then, as rumor had it, his, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. He came home. His mother said, your dad says you better get a job somewhere. And he decided to go um, do a fellowship training at the Mayo Clinic in gastroenterology. After he finished that, he went back to Strong Memorial and was there for a good number of years, rising to an associate professor level. And in 1967, he was hired to Dartmouth. He married Carol Povic, and they moved here to Hanover, and he lived out his career here until he passed away in 2008. In 1967, he created the first motility lab in northern New England. And in fact, it was among the first motility labs in the country, and it's been continuously running since he started it. And Maury focused on diseases of the esophagus, and specifically swallow disorders. And um, in his career, he became our first section chief of gastroenterology. You may know that when the clinic was in its earlier years, there were no sections. They came about in 1974. And so medicine had medicine people all together, but some of them had subspecialty training, but it was all general internal medicine with subspecialists. Sorry. And um, so Maury, at that time when the clinic then subdivided, became its first uh, leader, and he served in that role till 1988. When he tried to retire, but we didn't really let him retire, he ran the motility lab and read motility tracings for us for many, many years until his death. He loved working with students, he loved working with residents and fellows, and he actually came to the hospital nearly daily, and mostly to converse with colleagues, friends, to impart wisdom, to work with all of us here, and he rounded in the hospital basically until his death. Um, and so we remember him fondly, I remember him just as such a friend and colleague, and he always had a smile like you see here. He was just a great clinician and a real legacy at Dartmouth. So with that background, we're delighted to have Mark Pimentel here today, and I'm going to invite Eric Shaw up to introduce him. Eric has been here since, oh, about a year and a half now. Eric is our director of the Motility Lab. He's also the director of our Center of Excellence 
in GI motility, esophageal and swallowing disorders, and four gut issues. So please come up, Eric, and tell us about Mark Pimentel. And we're going to switch this over. <coughs> if you can bring up his slides. All right, so thank you, everyone. So today we're, I'm going to introduce Dr. Mark Pimentel, who's at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. So he's a professor of medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine in uh, at UCLA, an associate professor at Cedars-Sinai. He directed the motility lab um, in the center at Cedars for 13 years and has since transitioned to, he's now the executive director of the MAST program, Medically Associated Science and Technology. And that's a really cool program focused on developing, commercializing new devices, treatments, innovations, drugs in, uh, that treat the human microbiome across medicine. So Dr. Pimentel's accomplished a number of really incredible things. I think the most important thing is he championed research into identifying IBS as an organic disease with an actual pathophysiology behind it. Um, and this concept of post-infectious IBS that has since uh, borne out in science. And today, it's incredible. We take this for granted. Ten years ago, we certainly did not. So he authored the New England Journal Trials on Rifaximin for IBS. He's developed the first blood test on IBS. Um, and this month, uh, he led the SIBO guidelines, the first SIBO guidelines to ever come out that's in one of our flagship journals, uh, American Journal of Gastroenterology. So... He's done many incredible things. I just hope to live up to all of it. Um, and I'd like to introduce him. Uh, so Dr. Mark Pimentel. Well, thank you very much for the introduction, Eric. And it's an honor to be at, at this named lecture from Maurice Kelly. So I really, I really appreciate that invitation. So yesterday I gave GI grand rounds and a lot of what I'm going to say in the beginning is similar, so if you were at the GI Grand Rounds, you'll be a little bit bored, but I'll try and mix up some of the some of the stories. But the story comes with various stories, and I will try to uh, tell you a little of the behind-the-scenes things that happened as we were unfolding IBS as a microbiome disease. <clears throat> but I really, I'm going to, uh, this, these are my uh, conflicts. I'm going to sort of tackle this in four ways. One of the, as Eric pointed out, one of the important things that we were part of was trying to con convert or convince through science that IBS is a microbiome disease. And now I think we're at that point where that's accomplished. I'm going to spend the first bit of my talk just talking about how we got through that and what some of the concepts are. The second is I'm going to transition to what's called the reimagined study, and you'll understand what that means as we get to it. What we've learned so far, and there's, I'm only going to show you a few things because some of the things are still not published, but we are now finding individual bacteria with individual diseases, which is really sort of the, the holy grail because stool hasn't accomplished as much. <clears throat> Where are we going with therapies for the microbiome? And so the last thing I wanted to do was sort of go to the pie in the sky, which is okay, so what do we do with all this microbiome work? What are the principles for developing therapies and what's out there or what's coming? And so uh, that's how I wanted to sort of end it. So this talk is going to be quite different from the grand rounds I gave yesterday for GI. But let me start by saying the Human Microbiome Project, and I'll say this maybe two or three times during this presentation, this is the Nature paper that said, this is the Human Microbiome Project, and this is what the gut microbiome looked like. 
And so there were all sorts of figures and, and colorful depictions of what the human gut microbiome looked like, except it only used stool. And so they claimed that this stool or these data represented the digestive tract in totality. And I will argue and point to data that suggests that's completely incorrect because the small bowel is 15 feet long and the area of a surface area of a tennis court. And even though the number of microbes per ml is lower, the number of microbes in total in the small bowel may exceed the colon. And that's an absorbing surface. So what the bugs produce, we experience from the bacteria. And maybe looking in the stool wasn't, isn't, I should say, the best place to look for a pathogen or, or a signal with human disease. And, and you'll see as I go through why that's important. So as I said, I'll start with this. Irritable bowel syndrome affects 40 million people in the US, nearly 1 billion people worldwide. So it is the most or the largest disorder in gastroenterology and accounts for a lot of expenditure. What I was saying yesterday is the, the number one reason it's so expensive is not because we're doing colonoscopies or all this testing in IBS. It's because the original Rome criteria suggested we ought to. In other words, IBS was a diagnosis of exclusion. I'll give you a, a small story. When we first started to suggest that bacteria were causing IBS in the form of bacterial overgrowth, this was before the term microbiome emerged in 2003, which by the way helped us. The term microbiome helped us a lot. But before that, a, a letter to the editor went out after one of our papers came out. And the argument being made by this prominent investigator at the time was, well, it can't be bacterial overgrowth. Because if it's bacterial overgrowth, you have to exclude it. It's bacterial overgrowth. It's not IBS. And so he, the argument was kind of strange to me. And I, my counterargument in the rebuttal to that letter was, so basically what you're saying is that IBS will never be anything because if you find something, you have to remove it from IBS. And IBS is always an enigmatic disease or it's an unknown. And, and I thought that was really flawed thinking because I don't want to be the guy studying the disease that never exists. Um, but this is, what, over 23 years, this is what we've sorted out with irritable bowel syndrome. And I will walk you through the part on the microbiome not as much on the first part, except for a couple of slides. But we now know more about the pathophysiology of IBS from its inception than we do IBD because of this framework that I'm showing you here. We now know food poisoning is a cause of IBS. But I want to be careful because it's not the cause of IBS. If you have 100 people with IBS in your clinic, we can probably explain 60% of DIBS on the basis of food poisoning. Now, we cannot explain the entirety because remember, IBS is the wastebasket diagnosis. If you come up with diarrhea and nobody knows what's going on, you've been scoped, there's no ulcers, you get thrown in that wastebasket. Uh, and Rome criteria, 70% of Crohn's patients meet Rome criteria, so they're nonspecific, so you end up with a mishmash. But we can explain 60 to 70% of IBS from these pathogens starting, starting the event this toxin that's common to all these pathogens leading to antibodies to this, and, and then autoimmunity because of similarity between this protein and a human protein called vinculin leading to changes in the nerve uh, function, leading to stasis in the gut, which leads to bacterial overgrowth, making IBS an antibiotic responsive disease. Yesterday, I walked through every step in this process with 
some of the seminal papers. Today I'm going to fly over more on the microbiome and just touch a little bit on this earlier part. But I will say this, this is a paper from 2017 and I will paraphrase myself from yesterday and that is if 100 people got food poisoning today in this room, 11% would develop IBS as a result of it. That's from the CLEM paper. So you could say based on this paper, it's a summary of 45 prospectively studied outbreaks. You could say from this paper that the case is closed. This is the Mayo Clinic study showing that food poisoning causes IBS exclamation. We, we now know that this, this to be true. So this is exciting because now we can study the pathophysiology. We developed animal models of post-infectious IBS in order to understand the pathophysiology better. And uh, we'll cover this part at least today, the end result. So let's talk about this association between bacterial overgrowth and IBS. And you can imagine in 1996 to 1999, when we first got off the ground starting to look at this, starting to notice that breath tests were more abnormal in IBS, that the thinking of the day was that IBS was a psychological disease, that stress, anxiety, and depression were the only cause of IBS, and that we needed to deal with that. I'm not saying they're not contributing causes, but it was a little bit of a, a radical shift to think that bacteria could be contributing to IBS, and particularly bacterial overgrowth. But now in 2020, it's, a, it's pretty uh, convincing, and I'll show you some of that. <clears throat> so this is the intestine, of course, the large intestine, the small intestine, the ileocecal valve is important, but we've now defined SIBO as greater than 10 to the three bacteria per milliliter. Here is the bacterial count in the colon, Greater, around greater than 10 to the 12th, but about half the weight of stool is bacteria. So getting back to IBS, it's sort of an analogous to H. pylori. Helicobacter pylori was discovered in the 80s by Barry Marshall, and then not really by Barry Marshall, he adapted previous decades work of a bug in the, the stomach, so I need to be careful, but, but in essence discovered that H. pylori could cause ulcers. And it's not all peptic ulcer disease. So if you had 100 people with peptic ulcers, not everybody had H. pylori as a cause, but the majority did. The others could be NSAIDs or other reasons. It's the same thing here. Not all of IBS is bacterial overgrowth because some people with bacterial overgrowth don't have IBS, and they could have overgrowth because they're on opiates or they have adhesions, anything that's causing stasis in the gut. <clears throat> but 60 to 70% of DIBS, at least, is caused by overgrowth, and then there's a leftover group that we don't know what's going on. And so, but the notion that you would change the name from peptic ulcer disease to H. pylori disease didn't occur to people. And so we don't think SIBO is the name because it's an epiphenomenon from the stasis. The disease is IBS, the reason or an implicated uh, pathophysiological event is bacterial overgrowth in a portion of them. So I want, to, want you to think of it that way. But in a microbiome terminology, we, we, we know IBS is divided into IBS-C, IBS-mix, and IBS-diarrhea. But microbiologically, what we see are two distinct groups, that this group is associated with a particular type of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and this group is associated with methanogen overaccumulation in the gut. So methanogens are overgrowing here, and I'll touch on this briefly as well because methane slows transit. 
So methane in the gut, in animal studies, when you put methane into the intestinal tract, you get 70% slowing of transit because methane is a neurotransmitter or affecting calcium channels in the nerves. So now, just this week, so I had to, and this is not the Shaw of here, uh, it, this is another Shaw. Uh, this is a meta-analysis, just came out in the Red Journal literally day before yesterday. But it's very timely for this lecture because it essentially validates everything I'm talking about because all the data are compiled. And this is a uh, meta-analysis of all the breath test studies in irritable bowel syndrome, and it shows very clearly that IBS is associated with an abnormal breath test. And I point here for two reasons. Number one, they spell my name wrong, which is really exciting in, the, in this prominent paper. And number two, because even though we were one of the initial describers of this, I'm nowhere else to be seen. So this is an international group of, of very prominent investigators. And then the second thing I wanted to point out is these two dissenting papers, one of them by Bratton, which was over 100 patients, they took control, healthy controls from a college campus at 18 years old, and their IBS patients were 35 years old. This was not age or gender matched. It, it, was, it wasn't a very good, well-done study. But breath testing is complicated, and breath testing measures hydrogen. For those of you who understand breath testing, it used to be called the hydrogen breath test. Now it's called the lactulose or glucose breath test, and the word hydrogen has been omitted because we measure hydrogen and methane. Hydrogen is just fuel. It's fuel for methane or it's fuel for hydrogen sulfide in the gut because no matter how much hydrogen you have, it doesn't dictate your symptoms. So if you produced 100 parts per million on your breath during the test, you're not any more or less ill, meaning your bloating is not worse or more depending upon the level of hydrogen <clears throat> because this is being used by other organisms. We now know that methane, which uses methanogens, which use four hydrogens to produce one methane, Methane causes constipation. The more methane you have, the more constipated you are, and um, it's using the hydrogen. So therefore, you can't rely on the hydrogen level because it's being shunted, or it's shunted to hydrogen sulfide. And just this year, a machine is going to be emerging, or a test will be emerging that will measure all three gases, and these are the only three gases produced by bacteria in the gut uh, besides carbon dioxide. Uh, Another, again, going back to this new Shaw paper that just came out, they basically said, yep, 10 to the 3 IBS patients have more than 10 to the 3. They also have more than 10 to the 5th, but it doesn't separate well. 10 to the 3 is the cutoff for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it differentiates IBS from healthy controls. Methane was done in a meta-analysis. Uh, this is Dr. Kunkel, who's now the head of motility, who was my uh, mentee, head of motility at UCSD. <clears throat> and he uh, did this meta-analysis showing that methane is associated with constipation in general. And then the Shaw paper, again, referring to this brand new paper, shows the same with CIBS specifically, that methane is associated with CIBS. But we don't call this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth of methane we now rename this with the SIBO guidelines as intestinal methanogen overgrowth because methanogens are not bacteria, so you can't call it small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because it's an archaea, it's not a bacteria. So we're redefining all of this. And so if you go back to, again, now 1999, <clears throat> the problem in 1999, the breath test wasn't properly defined, 
people were measuring methane. Why were we measuring methane? Nobody even knew. There wasn't any papers on methane and constipation, but methane was added to the test mysteriously. Hydrogen was never defined. They never corresponded hydrogen levels to the cultures of the gut. Nobody ever did that study. So we almost had to rediscover everything that breath test meant and everything that this proximal small uh, bowel microbiome meant to these patients over 23 years to revalidate or validate for the first time, really. <clears throat> so continuing along this IBS path, cultures then emerged. This is now 2007 as we're walking through continue, a continuum of data. This is a study from Sweden, 165 IBS, 26 controls. IBS had more coliforms. So again, more accumulating proof that bacterial accumulation in the small bowel was important to IBS. Study by Pilaris, now 2012. This is using the 10 to the 3 definition. The 27% on this side are patients who are coming for upper endoscopy who do not have, they're not healthy. They're coming because they're sick, but they don't have IBS. <clears throat> and this is IBS. So we use this study as a marker to say, okay, if you just sampled the duodenum, 60% of IBSD has bacterial overgrowth. But, of course, spectral overgrowth can be more if you go further down, and we don't know the true answer of what percentage. But in this study, 60% of IBSD, and that's the number we're sticking with currently. <clears throat> now, remember this is a log 10 on the y-axis, so every number is 10 times more. And we now know E. coli and Klebsiella are the major players in the overcolonization in IBS. And these, of course, are unhealthy proteobacteria. So I'm going to briefly reintroduce the reimagined study and then uh, sort of open the wings of this study momentarily. But <clears throat> let me say this just as a, as a surrogate. The reimagined study is determined to get an archive of the small intestinal microbiome. So what we do in this trial is anybody coming in for an upper endoscopy but not colonoscopy. So we don't want the prep. We don't want the washing out effect, stripping out bacteria. And they get an aspirate, <clears throat> a biopsy from multiple places, blood for cytokines and for genetics, and then a, 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 you know, a um, sort of a biorepository of their symptoms, their medications, and so forth and so on, because medications can affect the microbiome. The goal is to get to 10,000 patients. We're at 500. So we have a large number. It's the largest in the world now on small bowel aspirates that we're aware of but we're trying to archive and determine what's causing disease, and we have some signals already. But <clears throat> getting back to the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we now have been able to define for the first time what is true SIBO. So on the right, it's greater than 10 to the 3 on culture, so the definition of SIBO as is traditionally defined. On the left is non-SIBO, and you can already see at the phylum level that proteobacteria is much bigger proportion of almost 50% of the organisms in SIBO are proteobacteria. Here it's much smaller. <clears throat> um, but I will say one more thing, and we're going to get to that later, but there's firmicutes and proteobacteria. Firmicutes and proteobacteria. Bacteroidetes is tiny. In the colon, Bacteroidetes is huge. So the colon and small bowel bacteria, you're already starting to see that there's marked differences, small bowel versus colon. But as you continue out, you can see it's now gamma proteobacteria, enterobacteria, ACA, et cetera. 
and you get to Klebsiella, and this big chunk here we now know is E. coli. So E. coli and Klebsiella are the two, yes, sir. <clears throat> what are these circles as you're going out? I was just going to tell you what they were. <clears throat> so um, this is bacteria, this class of life. This is the phylum all the way down to species. So every level of order of, of you know, classification of life is, uh, is the progression here. So you'll get all the way down to species level uh, if you sequence deep enough. But using all of this data, we were able to define what SIBO was based on sequencing. And for the first time in history, and this paper is now in press, <clears throat> but it was presented at DDW, is we were able to say that the breath test is valid. The breath test, if you have a rise in lact after lactulose of 20 parts per million by 90 minutes, the specificity for detecting bacterial overgrowth is 84%. Sensitivity is not great, but this is the best we get because it's an indirect measure. But it correlated with this elevation in gamma proteobacteria, which is the SIBO. It correlated with reductions in firmicutes, which are typical in SIBO. It correlated to, to some degree with gas or symptoms but it also correlated, so the more hydrogen correlated with upregulation of hydrogen pathways being produced by the bacteria in the duodenum. So arguments that, hey, the, this gas is coming from the colon because the lactulose gets there really fast, that's gone. This, this hydrogen is being produced in the small intestine. So what it confirmed is, this reimagined study, is it confirmed that, yep, this is correct. It's increased proteobacteria. We now know the bugs that are part of SIBO. Hydrogen production was validated against the breath test. The breath test was validated, and it corresponded with GI symptoms. And we'll continue to look at this as the numbers in the study accumulate. <clears throat> but it led to all of this work led to three sort of novel approaches to IBS. This is the rifaximin data. Now from 2011, we were understanding that IBS was a microbiome disease. The FDA had to figure this out because it's a complete right turn from where people were going with IBS. But this was the target one and target two data. And a two-week course of an antibiotic rifaximin made IBS better for three months. And that's never been seen because all the other IBS trials, as long as you stay on drug, you're a little better. Once you stop drug, everything returns to abnormal again within a week. <clears throat> but two weeks and patients stayed better. So something was shifting in the microbiome. And we now know it's likely overgrowth. There was a paper that I'm not showing today that showed that the breath test predicts this response. And, uh, and that was published two months ago. The second thing is that in methane, remember I said methane causes constipation. If you get rid of methane, you get rid of constipation. So this is neomycin and placebo because we know methanogens are not bacteria. Antibiotics are designed for bacteria, <clears throat> not archaea. But we learned in vitro that if you combine these two, you got a better effect on those organisms. And we saw that in a double-blind clinical trial. But what we saw in this trial is that the best response, meaning the, the patients whose constipation were most improved were those where the antibiotic made the methane less than three parts per million. So the point is not the antibiotic approach. The point is get the methane less than three and the patient's constipation will resolve. And so it led us to another product that we're going through phase two on, lovastatin. So lovastatin is produced by this character, Aspergillus. 
and these granules contain lovastatin, and it secretes into the swamp or the bog or wherever it's living the, this chemical. Turns out this wasn't made for your cholesterol. It was made by aspergillus for other reasons. And uh, aspergillus made this to inhibit methanogens in its environment. So in that swamp, the methanogens are intoxicating to these characters. And so produce a chemical that blocks methane production. Lovastatin, unfortunately, is an absorbed drug. So if you make it non-absorbed, <clears throat> could we get rid of methane? And the answer is yes. And a first clinical trial, a pilot trial, showed that methane goes down very quickly and constipation gets better. So we're now in phase two trial of this, what we call a drug for a bug. So I want you to think about that notion because at the end of the lecture, I'm gonna to talk to you about what do we need to do. So <clears throat> we're used to giving small molecules, aspirin, Tylenol for humans. Get it in the bloodstream, make you better. If you know what the bug is producing that's damaging to human, make it non-absorbed, make it go into the bacteria and stop its pathway. You don't have to kill the bacteria but block a pathway to producing some chemical, uh, whatever that chemical is. And so this is the first foray into called drugs for bugs. So it's non-absorbed lovastatin, doesn't get into your bloodstream, doesn't make your cholesterol better, but it's stopping methane production by the methanogens. <clears throat> so here we are back to the end of this segment, and that is that we now know that these things happen the E. coli, Kleb, uh, Shigella, Campylobacter salmonella can cause IBS. They have a toxin that produces antivinculin, and I don't go through the science of this, but this is the basis of a new blood test for IBS uh, with a specificity over 90%. And all of this leads to the notion that bacteria is important and that IBS is an antibiotic responsive disease. So the next part is what else can we learn from the reimagined study? So the reimagined study, again, is an attempt to find bugs because think about it. We've been 10 years into this. I show you 2007, so it's really 13 years since the Human Microbiome Project was first published. Anybody in the room can name a bug causing a disease. Remember, in the 1980s, we discovered C. diff. Old school microbiology found C. diff. Do we have a C. diff in the last 10? Do we have a bug in the last 10 years linked to diabetes? One bug, one disease? We don't. So all this high-tech microbiome in the stool hasn't really found a, a smoking gun. So the question is, is there, are there no more smoking guns or are we looking in the wrong place? And so the question is, has no answer yet, but what we're looking at is things like obesity, of course, I already mentioned small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, scleroderma, neuromuscular diseases, autoimmune diseases, et cetera. <clears throat> Drugs have an immense impact. We're already seeing this. We're presenting some of this at DDW, so I can't talk about it yet. But medications can have an immense impact on the microbiome. But I'll tell you in a moment one drug that remarkably doesn't uh, and that was thought to have a, a big impact. But the reimagined study is all of these things <clears throat> that are being characterized in a large population of about uh, 10,000 patients over a, a long period of time. Many years, we're going to accumulate this. <clears throat> so when you start, for example, there was a paper published, I won't say by what group, but it was published in Nature. They were, they were culturing and assessing the small intestine. Well, I can tell you that study is not accurate. 
And I'll tell you why that study is not accurate, because we spent almost a year and a half trying to validate how to do this right. Because what we found is that when you take juice from the small intestine, a lot of it is thick mucus. If you put that and do DNA isolation from that thick mucus, you don't get the bacteria from the mucus. It doesn't come out. So the DNA extraction kit techniques and kits that are used don't get those bacteria because they're stuck in the matrix of the mucus and the reagents don't access it. <clears throat> so we had to revalidate a whole new series of techniques to be able to archive or get the DNA out of the sample. And I'll show you that in a moment. The second thing we developed over the same period of time is a way to um, assess the microbiome, the genetics of the microbiome from histology. So let's say you had 100 um, gallbladders that are sitting in the path lab in formalin. We now have a technique to take those out of formalin, unfix them, and get the microbial DNA out and be able to see the microbe that could be causing a disease that's archived in a path lab somewhere. So there's two techniques that we developed over the last three years as part of the MASS program to see if we can take old samples and be able to see if a disease and bug are associated. And one of the things we're looking at right now is the cholecystitis. But I'll show you appendicitis because this is how we did it there. So this is all part of this reimagine uh, process. But sample processing is a problem because we didn't have the catheters. You can't just stick a catheter in there once you've done an endoscopy because it's all contaminated with oral flora. So we had to come up with a catheter. Now, this is not very magical. We have a new catheter called a capillary catheter where it has little tiny tubes to optimize suction. But there's a tube in a tube, and there's a cap on this tube. And this is ideal for not getting oral contamination. So nobody's using this tube. This is a, a sort of an innovation but a newer tube is working faster with capillary suction. <clears throat> and then, using the technique that I told you, using a mucolytic. So you take the sample, you bring it to the lab immediately, you apply a mucolytic, you dissolve all the mucus, and we get this much more. Um, you can see bacterial CFUs growing on a dish. So you, you've liberated a whole tremendous amount of bacteria. Look how much we would never have seen, and these are odd and unusual organisms in some instances. So if you don't know everything that's there, you don't know everything. And so you really have to apply this mucolytic and, and the new steps that we've published in BMC gastroenterology now, BMC microbiology, sorry. And the DNA yield also much higher, and the library preparation is much more enhanced by the fact that we applied this new methodology. So it's now the new standard going forward. But I want to start by saying the first thing we wanted to do now that we have this validated technique is to say, okay, <clears throat> is this nature paper right? Is the stool microbiome representative of the whole gut? Is that the, the, the characterization? And what we proved right away is that they're completely different. I don't want you to focus on what all the different circles are, but I do want you to focus on that the colors are all different. And a better way to represent this is here. So what I didn't say in the reimagined study is that the reimagined study also takes double balloon endoscopy cases. So anybody getting foregut or uh, endoscopy from above, they're part of the reimagined study. But if you're doing a double balloon, they're also part of the reimagined study. So we got samples 
almost 100 now from duodenum, jejunum. <clears throat> Furthest distance is FD because you don't know if you're for sure in the ileum sometimes. And that's the small bowel microbiome. Each color is a different organism. <clears throat> and so you don't need to know the names of the organism. What you need to know is that this is stool in the same patient. So these are matched samples. So the patients also bring stool in for reimagine. <clears throat> it's completely different. There's, there's no similarity between stool and small bowel. So the Human Gut Microbiome Project was incorrect. They are not looking at the whole microbiome. They're only looking at stool. And the small bowel, the 15 feet of small bowel, are remarkably similar across all the 15 feet. Little variation, but remarkably similar. So the small bowel is its own beast, and then the colon is its own beast. <clears throat> So let me give you examples of what we found so far. So this is using that new technique of taking old samples stuck in an archive on a, on a, on a slide and then capturing the DNA, and this is an appendicitis. So, of course, you know appendicitis, right, lower quadrant abdominal pain, fever, vomiting, et cetera, and sepsis and perforation are common. So the incidence of appendicitis, about 100 per 100,000 people. It's, uh, the incidence in 2015 were 378,000 appendectomies or appendicitis cases, I should say, not necessarily all appendectomies in the United States. And it's the most common abdominal surgical emergency in the world and, of course, expensive because of all the surgical procedures that are required. But there are a lot of possible causes for, for this, including luminal obstruction, foreign bodies, malignancy, infection, and so forth. <clears throat> but surgical removal is, was the mainstay. But antibiotic therapy has now crept in, and let me show you that. So this was a paper, um, doesn't, the date's not here, I think it was actually last year, but 530 patients, uncomplicated appendicitis, 273 underwent appendectomy, and 257 received antibiotic therapy. So they were randomized to antibiotics versus removal. <clears throat> and what, we, what was found was uh, most patients randomized to antibiotics, 72% did not require appendectomy. So for the first time, maybe we don't need to take the appendix out, just treat them with antibiotics. But why does that work? Is it just that, like diverticulitis, you give antibiotics and it sort of kind of gets better, or is there something else going on? But there is some patients who relapse. So the question is, why are they relapsing and is there something that's driving the relapse uh, over time? One of the things <clears throat> that we brought up yesterday in conversation in question and answer uh, was appendix was brought up even though the physician did not know I was talking about the appendix today. But the appendix is interesting because what we're finding, and I can't talk about all that data yet because we're, we still haven't published that, but what I will say is that the appendix is kind of like your archive. It's your archive of who you are as a stool microbiome. <clears throat> and if you take the appendix out, and we know this from the reimagined study, if you take the appendix out, the stool microbiome changes. Because the appendix is sort of, so let's say you got dysentery <clears throat> and you flush your colon out. Who's going to repopulate your colon? How are you going to get that magic mix again? Well, the appendix is sealed off. And so it recolonizes your colon. And so it's an interesting little organ. And, you know, I kind of think of it this way. You have all these organs. Nothing's really vestigial. We call it vestigial because we don't understand it. 
but nothing's really vestigial. Do you believe that all of these things are there for no, absolutely no reason, and you just lop them out since you're in there? Oh, we're in there. We're doing a laparoscopy. The appendix looks good, but just in case, let's take it out. So, you know, these are things that have been done in the past. Um, so the large intestine, fecal microbiome, and appendix, not too dissimilar, not too dissimilar uh, in the appendix microbiome, meaning we took appendixes that were perfectly normal. And so how do you get appendixes that are perfectly normal? So these were women with endometriosis who had no effect on the bowel that they decided to lop out the vestigial organ. And so we have normal appendixes, and then we have matched age and gender, meaning they're all women, appendic appendicitis as well. So looking at appendicitis, it's not a lot of differences in diversity using alpha diversity. <clears throat> not a lot of differences to really find at the family level looking at this map, but it gets more interesting as you dig deeper. There is some difference. These are the controls, and this is the appendicitis cases. And what we found were three differences and that account for when we do further separation, starting to stratify for organisms, specific organisms. And you'll recognize one as a bad player, but lactobacillus is a little higher, not a lot higher, but a little higher. Acinetobacter is a little bit higher. Campylobacter is higher. So Campylobacter, we know, could be jejuni, could be something else. And we eventually found out it was Campylobacter jejuni, which is food poisoning. <clears throat> so this is what we found. So we did then qPCR for Campylobacter jejuni. And you can see there's a lot of patients with appendicitis on, in the red that have Campylobacter jejuni in their appendix, in appendicitis. And you could actually get a 93% specificity for identifying appendicitis with a cutoff, low sensitivity. And then we looked at other Campylobacter and said, well, is it just Campylobacter or is it jejuni? No, it's jejuni. There's none of these. And all the other pathogens were negative, so we studied all the other pathogens. So what we were able to find, I think I have a summary slide, but it's about 30, where did, I, where did that go? 32% of appendicitis is just plain old food poisoning causing inflammation in the appendix. And so maybe that's why antibiotics work for some cases of appendicitis. Can we identify that in the ER and predict that that patient, that's the reason, and then treat that patient and not take their appendix out is the question based on this data. I'll talk about one other area that uh, we presented last year at DDW. This was an oral presentation. Uh, and this is now uh, in publication process, so it's not fully published yet. But proton pump inhibitors, everybody says, well, proton pump inhibitors, very extensively used. You know, 15% you know, of certain populations are on proton pump inhibitors, and they cause a lot of bad things, antiplatelet action, kidney disease, et cetera. Even dementia has been started to be reported, although there's some debate about all of these different factors. But one of the things that gastroenterologists say is that, oh, you take a PPI, you're going to have all sorts of bacteria in the gut. You're going to have bacteria in the stomach. You're going to have bacterial overgrowth. Maybe that's why IBS has so much bacterial overgrowth, going back to the beginning of the lecture, and that uh, PPIs do this. How long do you think it takes for acid to kill bacteria? If you were to put a pH of one acid on a bacteria, how long do you think it's going to live? 
not a long time, right? So how many minutes of the day do you need acid to kill bacteria? You don't need many minutes. It's pretty intense for them. So that didn't quite make sense to me because PPIs are not 100% acid proof, meaning it doesn't just completely get rid of acid every minute of the day. So let's see. So now we looked at this in the reimagined study. I already talked about bacterial overgrowth. This is the meta-analysis using breath testing for SIBO in non-IBS. Now, the Shaw paper, which I mentioned earlier, showed that an IBS PPI has nothing to do with SIBO. And I'm not showing that, and I didn't show it earlier because I didn't want to spoil my punchline for this part of the lecture. But this is what was driving some of that argument. So PPI use is not associated with SIBO. This is the culture of the small bowel. PPI users, no PPI users. It does not cause small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Using the new sequencing-based definition of SIBO, still not statistically different. And it doesn't matter which type of PPI you're on, omeprazole, pentoprazole, esomeprazole, they're all, they all don't cause SIBO. So this is what it looks like. just want to make sure I'm not going over time. This is what it looks like. The overlap is almost universal, but again, you can do more structured overlap, and you do see a little bit of difference, and let me explain that because it is kind of interesting. This is called the VIP score, and, and basically what it does is it looks for any organism or category of organisms that might be different in the PPI users. Red means it's going up. Green means it's going down. So in Campylobacter appears to be... I think that's going down in, uh, in PPI. No, going up in PPI, my apologies. And Clostridia is going down. So PPI has been associated with possibly C. diff. And yet here we're saying Clostridiaceae, which is not the species C. diff, but it's going down with use of PPI, which is interesting. Now, if you just look at Clostridia, completely. So now all these circles are just further and further into Clostridia. It's really Vialinella and other Clostridiaceae that are changed. But you have to look a little closer. No PPI. This is the Clostridial line, meaning heading towards C. diff. C. diff would be out here. And this is PPI. It's less. We didn't see any C. diff colonization in PPI. But remember the microbiome? is funny. The microbiome is funny. So it's sort of like you have rabbits in the forest, right? And now you have more rabbits in the forest. So is it an op not having clostridia, is it an opportunity for an opportunist because you don't have competitors? So could it be that PPI's risk for clostridia is because there aren't enough clostridia there? We don't know the answer. So don't ever look at this as very black and white, it could be more interesting. But there is truly statistically less clostridia in PPI users. Uh, again, this is showing at the family level. <clears throat> and then another interesting finding was increased streptococcus in the small bowel. Streptococcus meaning streptococcus from your mouth. So there is colonization of mouth, mouth flora in the small intestine because it gets through the gastric acid. So again, interesting, but really doesn't, not a lot of major changes, less changes than we ever expected. 
So the final part of this in the last few minutes, I, was, um, I, I know I've just touched on a couple of things, but here's what I'll tell you over the next year. We have one single organism we have found for, um, uh, for uh, fatty liver and NASH. I can't tell you what the organism is yet, but we found one organism, not five, not a pattern, one organism. I can tell you that we found an, two organisms, but we're trying to sort out which one is the predominant organism that produces testosterone in the gut and may be implicated in polycystic ovary syndrome because it's excessive testosterone production. We have found one bug associated with obesity, and you'll be shocked to know what that bug is uh, because it's one that you all know very well. Uh, so we're finding single organisms associated. Cause and effect is extremely difficult, and I'm not going to be all pie in the sky and say we found the holy grail for everything. I'm saying that we're finding single organisms with single disease. The association could be cause, effect, could be chicken or egg, but the, we're starting to study individual organisms and putting them into animals to see if they develop the phenotype to see cause and effect. But that's why the small bowel may be more important. But where, where, where does this all lead? Well, it leads to ways to treat. Well, antibiotics is just a slug. You know, it's like a, like a big hammer, and you're just hammering everything. Maybe you don't have to be so indelicate. Probiotics, basically, you're replacing. So you, you're arguing that one organism is going to correct the thousands that are there. That also can be naive. But there are little specific tricks to probiotics that I'll show you. <clears throat> Fecal transplant is another slug using what we think is the, the microbiome. The problem is, who's normal? Who's the donor? There are now these uh, magic donors who have sort of the ideal microbiome, and maybe they're going to cure ulcerative colitis, and they're going to be the har harvested continuously because they have the magic mix, as we put it. Not magic mic, that's a different thing. <clears throat> Genetically engineered bacteria is another thing that's being worked for, and this notion of drugs for bugs, which I briefly scratched the surface of earlier. So let's look at this very quickly. Probiotics, right? It's simple. It's promising. The problem with probiotics is there are so many, and I promise you they don't all work. Um, and so one little trial of 40 patients, all of a sudden there's a product on the shelf of the CVS, and, and you... There's claims being made about it, but then there's always this, this subtext that says this is not approved for treatment for any specific disease because it's a natural product. And to try to get a, a probiotic approved by the FDA, the FDA has created a lot of hurdles because they don't want the microbiome to be distorted by probiotics that never leave your body ever once you've taken them. Fecal transplant we talked about. It's simple. It's very promising. But as you've seen recently, a lot of side effects potentially. We have one study we published where somebody had C. diff, they were transplanted with a fecal transplant, and all of a sudden now they're not having diarrhea. They're having one bowel movement a week. And they were transplanted methanogens. So they got a donor who had methane, transplanted it into the C. diff patient, and now they have constipation so bad they wish they had C. diff. Probably not true. But... <clears throat> The, the problem, the point is they came to us and they were, they were very frustrated because of the symptomatology that it generated. And, you know, there were some, some deaths from superbugs as well. 
Genetically modified bacteria, I'm not going to get, there's a ton of data on this. I could go for an hour just on this. But basically, you take the bacteria, you put in a gene you want to produce an anti-TNF. I'm just making that up. You probably can't do that. But something that it's making a chemical inside the gut and making you better. So it's sort of like having a, a factory for a drug that will treat a disease. And a lot of these are being looked at in IBD specifically because it's, you know, it's more of a topical approach to it. The problem with these is you've created a new bacteria that's never existed before. So they have to be built with kill switches. And kill switches are, if they escape the body, they can't survive. And the FDA has rules on what these kill switches must look like. And there are all sorts of dead man switch, this, that, and many different kinds. And I'm not going to get into all those as well. Drugs from bugs. So this is the second genome approach. The second genome says the bugs can produce really amazing things that are anti-inflammatory or are antibiotic. And so if we can find that one chemical and purify it, we can find a drug, sort of like getting drugs from plants. And so that approach is more pharma, takes more time, but that's happening. And then finally, the drugs for bugs approach, which I like, <clears throat> because if you don't get absorbed as a molecule, you're less likely to cause harm or side effects in humans. And why kill the bacteria if you can just target one little pathway in that bacteria that seems to be causing the problem, such as stop it from producing testosterone. If you can do that, maybe you can help that individual. So that's what we're, we're looking at, and that's sort of our approach. So in conclusion, I hope I left time for questions. I think I did. The gut microbiome is more than just the study of stool. Secondly, SIBO is a real condition now validated by sequencing. Three is SIBO is important in a subset of IBS, and the reimagined study has validated a lot of these new techniques for now laying the groundwork for studying the small bowel because I think discoveries and pipelines of new products will come from the small bowel more than the colon because that's where you absorb your pills when you're treating yourself, and that's where you'll absorb the chemicals that the bacteria produce. I can't, <clears throat> the next slide takes a long time to load, but these are all the crazy people I work with who are innovative and uh, working in the lab, trying desperately to find new treatments based on the microbiome and uh, uh, work very hard. And I just come here and speak and look all fancy. Uh, but this is, the, this is the mass program. So thank you so much for your attention. start with the first question because you and your colleagues uh, have the ability to probably answer this question. Following fecal transplant, where you might change the colonic microbiome, what have you noticed about its changing the small bowel microbiome? And I assume that a lot of what happens in the small intestine is happening through the ileocecal valve with bacteria that are going up there, but then microenvironments are changing what's happening. But what do we know about post-fecal transplant and effect on small bowel microbiome that you've studied. So there's one study that shows that if you get fecal transplant orally, you can actually cause overgrowth. <clears throat> now, the problem with fecal transplant is that everything's going from the colon. So we don't have a lot of patients in the reimagined study who are just coming for upper endoscopy. But eventually, we'll accumulate enough to answer that question. I think it's a very good question, but I don't have enough patients with fecal transplant to get that answer yet. Uh, first, Mark, thanks for coming. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for really helping change the field and how we think about this entity, which is amazing. Uh, it, it's going to sound like an IBD question, but it's not. Uh, so Everything's an IBD question. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I agree with 
You're helping me maybe understand a phenomenon we see with ulcerative colitis, which is there seems to be an association between appendectomy and preventing ulcerative colitis or severity. In fact, some have suggested a randomized trial doing appendectomy to prevent ulcerative colitis in high-risk individuals, and you're helping me put that thought together. <coughs> Connecting it with um, one of your uh, countrymen, Gil Kaplan, who's in Calgary, yep. who about 10 years ago published a study that appendectomies went up uh, based on air pollution. And it makes me wonder if there's a connection or a connection that you've thought through that is the microbiome changing in some way over time based on the environment, pollution, where you live in the world. And I wonder if that's been a consideration at all. Well, it's a very global question, but uh, the microbiome is definitely changing with time. I think Marty Blazer from New York, who you probably all know since you're closer to Marty than I am, you know, he says the micro, human micro, if you go back to 200 years ago, if they take fecal samples that they find, like are petrified or wherever they find these samples, they find that it was different then. Now, food was different then. Pathogens were different then. So there's a lot of things different. But he argues that our, you know, um, all the things we have, food additives, preservatives, other things that we're ingesting, antibiotics and so forth, are deteriorating our microbiome as a society. Uh, and so everything is changing, whether it's air pollution or, or whatever the, the, the situation is. So you could argue that we're never going to know what the normal microbiome is if we keep, if it keeps deteriorating with time. So we don't even really know what the normal microbiome is. It's a moving target. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question at all, but I basically think that there's a lot of factors that go into the microbiome. But air pollution, for example, could also be associated with more lower socioeconomic status if you happen to be in countries where pollution is greater. And, and so there's a lot of factors that can be in the mix there. Thank you. This was absolutely wonderful. Um, my question is, one of the hallmarks of IBS is the gender difference in prevalence, and how does your work inform our understanding of why? I love that question. Thank you. <clears throat> the, the Yesterday we covered that in the lecture. So Food poisoning is almost twice as likely to make a woman develop IBS than a man. And what I didn't talk about were these antibodies that develop that we think are causative in IBS, causing the muscular abnormalities. One of the antibodies being the autoantibody vinculin to vinculin. Women get more autoimmune diseases. Women get more post-infectious IBS than men. If you took 100 women and infected them, it would be like 22% get IBS. And so... It's got to do with women's propensity to develop autoimmune disease. That's the best answer I can give today. But it's better than the answers we've been giving before. Uh, and so it's not that, so I'm going to say something, and you're all going to just gasp. But there was a uh, te teaching program for fellows to practice for the boards. And one of the gastroenterologists in this teaching program said, IBS is a disease of hysterical women. That was two years ago. Okay, so to me that's shocking because that is not what IBS is, and we've learned that lesson, and we know so much about it that that is not the case. And so we have to stop that kind of conversation. So. <clears throat> uh, thanks for a great talk. I want to take you back to a comment made about 10 minutes ago talking about associations and causality. I think it's so important. And the world of IBD, I think as you know, you guys are sort of now where, where we were a little 
bit ago with this interesting association between the microbiome, fungal, etc., the coastal and systemic immunity, and, and also genetic predispositions. And of course, you're touching on a whole host of diseases and associations here to reimagine. One of the ways we've tried to untangle these associations, what we're looking forward to, is taking high risk individuals and family members who have higher risk of IDD and studying them you know, early on and looking at genes, microbiome, et cetera, to try and figure out you know, causality a little bit more. And I guess this is a global question, but I just wonder, looking forward in this, in these realms of other diseases, how do you see best? You mentioned animal models. Is that really be the best way to try and get a causality? Because associations, these are really interesting and important, but causality would be sort of more of holy grail. Yeah, so, so not to knock IBD, but everything's about IBD, but there are is no animal model of IBD that is true IBD. Am I fair to say that? IL-10 is not ulcerative colitis, IL-10 knockout. It's colitis, but it's not. We infect rats with Campylobacter. They get bacterial overgrowth, they get IBS symptoms or loose stool, they get anti-CDTB antibodies, they get anti-vinculin antibodies. That's exactly what we're seeing in humans. We have an animal model, which I didn't cover today, that covered that spectrum and explains that whole sequence that is exactly what we see in IBS. And, and so, and E. coli and Klebsiella are up in these animals. The higher the antibodies, the higher the overgrowth. We see that in humans now. I haven't talked about that. So I didn't cover parts of the lecture from yesterday because I don't want to be redundant, but that animal model is very flushed out and we think it's the same. So our animal model is very robust and actually mimics exactly what's happening in humans, but allows us to study the pathophysiology better. I agree with you, we're not done. I mean, there's lot, lots to do, even in IBS, to try and sort through this. But I'll say one thing about the antivinculin antibodies. We did one study, five patients, never gonna be published because I don't want it citable, but we did plasmapheresis in those who had an antivinculin antibody that was super high in IBS, plasmapheresis in IBS, and the bloating and distension went completely away for a month until the antibodies reemerged. So I'll let you stew on that for a minute because it really suggests that we have a more clear understanding of what might be the cause of IBS. These antibodies might be destructive to the nerves and then they repopulate if you get rid of them. So it may speak to the future of how to treat IBS. I think because of the time, I'll invite you up to speak with Mark here at the podium. But again, thank you for coming and visiting us. Thank you. Appreciate it.